Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. 1 Peter 1, 10-12. We're continuing through uh, a sermon series here today on 1 Peter called Walking in Hope. Uh, as I was studying this text, uh, I was reminded of one of the most common objections that at least I find to the Christian faith, one of the most frequent reasons cited for people being slow to commit themselves to Christ is this, this idea that it's really impossible for us to know with any certainty what is true about God, about Jesus, about the afterlife, about who Jesus was, about what Jesus did, about what Jesus promises. Uh, for a lot of people, these things, these spiritual topics, they, they just seem to be beyond the scope of what we can really understand. And added to this is the fact that uh, it is true, isn't it, that there are so many denominations, there are so many religions, there are so many different interpretations of the Scriptures that we're really left in some cases wondering, and maybe even those of you who are Christians have wondered this, I mean, what is it that we can really know with any degree of confidence or certainty? What can we know? That's what we're going to be talking about here uh, today. If you are a person who believes that you know who God is and how to be reconciled to him, how to be saved, how to know that you're going to heaven when you die, in this culture today, you might be viewed as being somewhat arrogant for thinking that, uh, maybe narrow-minded. People might say to you, uh, <clears throat> how can you say your interpretation is any better than anybody else's? You might be looked at as someone who's putting God in a box, someone who's trying to reduce God to mere human words, and isn't it clear that we can't do that? God's bigger than what we can describe. It's also mysterious. How can we know? Uh, here's a, a quotation I found from a, a woman speaking. It was an article in Christianity Today several years ago. <clears throat> Here's what she says. I grew up thinking we figured out the Bible, that we knew what it means, I should say, what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means. And yet I feel like life is big again, like life used to be black and white, but now it's in color. So this idea of not really knowing what the Bible means and not really knowing what to believe, that's even something that's kind of celebrated uh, even in the church Today And maybe even more so in today's culture because we do live in a culture in a world where we seem to be so much more knowledgeable than we used to be. There's just so much more information available. The world is increasingly pluralistic. That means there uh, are gaining ascendancy a number of different religious views. I mean, even here in the United States, even here in, in Muncie. Um, not everybody that you meet, can you assume, was brought up in the church. We have people from all sorts of religious backgrounds. And so some might conclude that, yeah, it's hard to really know what's true. And in fact, it's even harder today, in this day and age, it's so hard to know 
what is really true. And the result of all of this, in my opinion, is that people take this and it causes them to be very slow to commit. They, they, they don't want to make a decision about who Jesus is or about Jesus' call on their lives. And so they hold back and they, they think it's justified to <clears throat> be slow to make a decision because what if I'm wrong with all of these different views? Maybe some of you know there's this new kind of sociological category now called the nuns. I don't mean N-U-N-S, nuns. I mean N-O-N-E-S, the, the nuns. That is, when people are asked on surveys to check the box that indicates their religious affiliation, what they check is the box that says none. They have no religious affiliation. And according to some polls, as many as one-third of adults under the age of 30 consider themselves nuns. No religious affiliation. Now, that doesn't mean atheist. It doesn't mean that they've rejected God. In fact, a lot of these people consider themselves very spiritual, interested in religious things. But they're slow to commit. They won't give themselves to any particular religion. And I wonder if that has something to do with this idea. There's just so much, so complicated, how can we know? So, I wonder what Peter would say to that. What would Peter say to a person who would say, it's just impossible to really know? I, I think what Peter says here addresses this uh, to some degree, these verses 10 through 12. And so, let's read these together. Uh, please stand. We're not reading this out loud together. I, I will read it to you. Um, <clears throat> but let's see what Peter says here. Starting with verse 10. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they, were serf <coughs> excuse me, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Father, we do ask, open our eyes, soften our hearts, enable us to behold wonderful things in your word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Peter here is concerning, talking about what different categories of people actually knew about God. And so the first thing that he talks about here is what the prophets knew. What, what did the prophets know about what? What am I talking about? Well, at the very beginning of the passage, verse 10, Peter says, concerning this salvation. <clears throat> so that's this salvation we talked about last week, this inheritance that we are promised through uh, Jesus Christ, through faith in him and all that he has accomplished. Concerning that salvation, Peter goes on to talk about the prophets, you see there in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets. Now let's just stop there. What, what is a prophet or what prophets is Peter talking about here? Well, he's looking to the prophets from the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah and Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Daniel and many others. 
you might know that in the Old Testament there are basically three primary offices that uh, men held. There was the office of king, the office of priest, and the office of prophet. The king was the person who uh, led the nation of Israel in their international affairs. He led them into battle, led all of their military campaigns. The priest was the one who would intercede between the people and God, primarily responsible for the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. And then we have <clears throat> this prophet, this office of prophet. Now, the prophet was the one who would receive revelation from God and then would deliver it, would speak on God's behalf. God would give him words, and then this prophet, as a representative of God, would speak to God's people, giving them God's word. Now, what's interesting about these offices is that the office of prophet actually had authority over the office of king. Do you remember in our study of 1 Samuel last summer that Saul, the very first king in Israel, was accountable to Samuel, who was a prophet. Do you remember that? When Saul didn't do what Samuel asked, Saul got in trouble for that because Saul was accountable to Samuel, the prophet. You might remember uh, Nathan going to King David when David fell into his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. It was Nathan, the prophet, who came and rebuked David, and David humbled himself before the prophet. So the prophet is uh, a supreme office here in the Old Testament. And, and here's what would happen with your typical prophet. Uh, there's an, a phrase that occurs repeatedly in the Old Testament that's kind of easy to, to overlook. But, but here's what would happen. Uh, for example, here in 1 Samuel 15, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, Samuel the prophet. 2 Samuel 7, 4, that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Nathan the prophet. 1 Kings 17, 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And, and on and on it goes with so many of the different prophets. What would happen is the word of the Lord would come to them. Now, we're not sure exactly how that happened, but somehow the prophet would receive from God this revelation. And then the prophet would take those words, as I said, and would then apply them to the people of God. Now, that happened in a couple of different ways. Most often, what the prophet would do is take what had already been revealed in the Old Testament, and he would call the nation of Israel to repentance based on their disobedience to what has already been revealed. So sometimes we think of a prophet as someone who's just always predicting the future. Well, most often prophets were calling the people of God to repentance. That's mostly what they did. But they also did, on occasion, they would prophesy, and you see that in verse 10. These prophets, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. In other words, they often prophesied, they were often given direction from God, information from God about what was going to happen in the future, in particular with regard to a coming Messiah. A Messiah promised by God was on his way, and the prophets would, would declare this. And what Peter's telling us here is that these prophets, they wanted to know so badly 
what this Messiah was going to be like. Do you see that in um, verse 11? What did they do? You know, at the end of verse 10, excuse me. They searched and inquired carefully. Now, now what was it that they were searching? I, I think certainly they were searching for the later prophets anyway, they were searching what had already, already been written and given to them in the first five books of the Old Testament. But in some cases, I think these prophets were actually searching the, the oracles that God had given them when the word of the Lord came to them. I don't think the prophets were always fully aware of the full significance of everything that they were saying and writing. And what Peter is saying is that these prophets, they were looking at the scriptures, they were looking at the word of the Lord that came to them, and they were searching carefully. They were inquiring with great diligence. They were being very proactive. They wanted to know what was going on. I mean, that's kind of the sense here. They were highly diligent in what they were searching for and what they were trying to know. It's like, I mean, you know what happens when you lose your cell phone. You know, what do you do? You, you just, you take the house apart until you can find your cell phone. If you don't have a cell phone, just insert car keys or, or wallet or purse in, in place of that. When you lose those things that are important, I mean, you look in your pocket, you look in your nightstand, you look in your car, you don't give up easily until you find that. You can't really think of anything else until you find that thing. And that's what's indicated here. That's what the sense is here. These prophets, they, they wanted to know so badly about this Messiah. Now, what is it that they were hoping to find? Well, it tells us that in verse 11 again. <clears throat> they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories so when the prophets would receive the word and when the prophets looked to Scripture that had already been given to them, they were seeing clues. They were getting some information about this coming Messiah, that he was going to be one who would suffer and that he was going to be one who would be glorified somehow. So, for instance, maybe they looked with regard to sufferings at a passage like Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah receives this word from the Lord. And so Isaiah looks at that and says, wow, what, what is that about? Or in the Psalms, we see verses like this. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine. I've done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Who's this talking about? The prophets are looking and they're searching and they're seeing that this Messiah is going to be someone pierced, someone who is going to be attacked, someone who has done no wrong. He'll be attacked unjustly. But they also are seeking to learn something about the subsequent glories is what Peter says. So they might have looked at uh, passages like Isaiah 9, 6, or to us a child is born, to us a son is giving, given, and this son's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wow, who, who is that talking about? Some son that's going to come into the world and is going to receive this kind of description. And again, this is the word given to Isaiah, and Isaiah is looking at his own prophecy. What, what could this mean? Daniel 7, that George read to us just a moment ago, speaking of someone who's given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language will worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. 
So there's going to be something glorious about this coming Messiah. But what did the prophets not know? There were clues given in the Old Testament based on these examples that I've given you. <clears throat> but if you look back at verse 11, what are they inquiring about? They're inquiring about what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. In other words, they're wondering, who, who is this person? And when is this person coming? Because the prophets were ignorant of that. They didn't know what this person entirely was going to be like. They didn't know the circumstances surrounding his birth. They didn't know about the miracles that he was going to perform. They didn't know about all that he would teach and the parables that he was going to tell. They didn't know about the cross. They didn't know about shed blood that would pay for people's sins. I mean, they didn't know about these things. In terms of the person, they didn't know, and they didn't know about the time either. They didn't know when this Messiah was coming. They didn't know if he was coming later that afternoon or later that week or in the generation of their children or in 500 or 5,000 years. They didn't know. So here's these prophets. They, they, they're so curious. They want to know so much. These prophets, these righteous men of God, these ones chosen by God for this very specific purpose, these men after whom books of the Bible have been named, these men that we name our own children after so often. We have a high reverence for the prophets, and yet there was so much they didn't know. So much. So what did the prophets know? A little bit but a lot was missing. Well, how about the angels? What did the angels know? What did the angels know concerning this salvation? In verse 10 there, that's what kind of sets up all of these verses. Concerning this salvation, what did angels know? Well, they're mentioned at the end of verse 12. <clears throat> Peter says there are things into which these angels long to look. There was a, a poll conducted by Baylor University back in 2008 asking about whether people believed in angels. 55% of people polled said they believed that at some point in their lives they had been protected by a guardian angel. Now that's just kind of interesting just knowing how kind of slow people are to believe in Jesus or to know anything about who God is and how they can get to heaven, but people are pretty quick to say that they know that guardian angels have had some place in their lives. People are, are apparently quick to believe that. So uh, this is fairly common, and certainly the Bible teaches that, yes, angels do exist. A couple years ago, I did a sermon uh, on angels in our Q&A sermon series, was asked to uh, give a biblical portrait of angels. Um, so <clears throat> just as a review, I mean, what, what are angels? What is the biblical description of angels? The Bible says that they are they're created beings, that is, they're, they're not eternal. They, they had a point where they began. Uh, they're spiritual beings. That is, they don't have physical bodies. They are moral beings. There are some who are good angels, and then there are bad angels as well. Uh, they are numerous. The Bible says thousands upon thousands of angels exist. They are mighty uh, they wage war on behalf of God's people, and they're intelligent as well. 
They're, they're thoughtful. They, they think. They, they know things. And in fact, they're intelligent enough to be very interested in spiritual things. <laughs> I mean, one commentator said, the angels have a holy curiosity. And we see that in verse 12, at the end of verse 12. These things that have been announced by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven are things into which angels long to look. Long to look. This word here for uh, the way the angels are looking into these spiritual things is the same word used to describe Mary when she comes upon the empty tomb and it says she stooped down to peer into the tomb. Now imagine the holy curiosity that she must have had looking into the empty tomb. And that's the same kind of curiosity these angels are having. And the verb here, it's, it's in present tense, which just simply means it means that this is an ongoing activity of the angels. They're constantly looking into these things, constantly searching out what is true about the gospel. They're interested to know how the gospel is at work in the world, what God is doing through the power of the gospel. In fact, I think what we can say is that the angels are observing, they are watching the way the gospel is bearing fruit in all of our lives. The angels are paying attention. And remember this passage from Luke 15? Jesus says, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The angels are watching you, Christian. Did you know that? I mean, think about that maybe this week when, when you repent of sin, when you kneel in prayer, when you read your Bible, when you decide to share the gospel with somebody, and you're thinking, Nobody's noticing. Nobody's paying attention. The angels are watching you. The, the, the world doesn't care about those things, right? And remember, that's what Peter is writing to these Christians to, to remind them or to encourage them. They are living in a culture where the world is against what they believe. There's hostility against their values. And so Peter is trying to give encouragement to Christians who live in a culture like that. And that's you and me. We live in that kind of a culture. It's not noticed when you kneel in prayer, is it? You don't get any attention for repenting of your sin from the world. Nobody throws a party when you share the gospel. There's no article in the newspaper about the growth of grace in your heart. But the angels are very impressed. The angels are watching the gospel bear fruit in you with rapt attention. You can just imagine they're probably calling to one another, hey, Get to come over here, check this out. Look at that person down there. That person who, who has been thinking about opening his Bible all these years and he's resisted it, and now there he is, he's cracking it open. Isn't that awesome? Look at that person who is so afraid of the opinions of other people, and yet she is sharing the gospel with somebody, and the Spirit is at work in that person's heart. Look at that person who's been so stubborn and so resistant and now that person's heart is melting and he's confessing sin and he's repenting. Angels gather around, look at that. Isn't that cool? That's what the angels are doing. They're longing to know about these things. But again, the spirit here is that 
The angels want to know more because they don't know enough. There certainly isn't any reason for us to think that the angels knew any more than the prophets did. To some degree, the angels, too, were kind of in the dark. The prophets wanted to know these things. The angels wanted to know these things. But written at the time that Peter is writing this, there was so much that wasn't yet revealed, so much yet to be known. So, this leads us up to the final question, which is this. What can you know? What can you know about God, about Jesus, about how to be reconciled to him? Friends, here's the point of this passage. What Peter is trying to tell us is that you and I live in a very privileged and special age a very privileged period of time after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and before his return. It's what we call the New Covenant Age where things that were once concealed are now revealed through the preaching of the gospel and through the writings of the New Testament. Friends, this is just, this is the absolute best time to be alive in all of history. Right now, and, and not just the New Covenant age, but I think even now later in the New Covenant age is where our understanding of Scripture is increasing. This is the absolute best time to be alive because of what is available to us to know about who God is and what He's done. It's just so contrary to what so many people think. Oh, we live in this age when you can't know anything. It's quite to the contrary. We live in this age where there's so much available to us. Okay, here's what Peter is saying. Watch how he does this. He's writing to New Covenant believers. Of course, this is soon after the resurrection of Jesus, but Jesus is raised. He's been ascended to heaven. And look in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, Christians, you living in the New Covenant age, New Testament believers, this grace was for you. Verse 12, it was revealed to them, that is the prophets, that they were serving, not themselves. Who are they serving? They're serving you. The prophets were writing about things that were going to be opened up and revealed so that you, ultimately, Christians living in this day and age, would be blessed. And then in verse 12, later in verse 12, he goes on, these things that have now been announced, to whom? To you, Christians. To you, church of Jesus Christ. How have they been announced? Through the preaching of the good news, the preaching of the gospel, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. As preachers stand forth and declare and open up what is written in the Bible, the Holy Spirit joins with that preaching and opens up to you things that the prophets and the angels dreamed about knowing. And that's offered to you. Look what it says here in Luke 10. Jesus, turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, New Covenant believers. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see, they, they desired to know what you know, what you see, but they didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They were at a great disadvantage, but you, Christian, are at a great advantage. 
It's like this. I mean, sometimes maybe you've walked into a room and the light was out, and maybe it was a house that you'd never been in before, or maybe a hotel room or something you weren't familiar, and all you could see were shadows and kind of shapes and, and figures, and you kind of walk in, you bump into something, you're not really sure what that is, and you reach over and you touch something, you're not, you're not sure what that is. There's something there, you know it, but it's dark. You can't really make anything out. And then you reach with your hand and you look for the light switch and you find it and you turn on the light switch and all of a sudden, here's all this light cast on all these shadows. And all of a sudden you see, oh yeah, that was a lamp and it's blue and here's a chair and it's brown and here's a sofa and it's leather. And you see all these details that are there for you now to understand because of light that has been cast into that room. That's the difference between Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. The prophets and the angels were seeking to find out these things in a darkened room, and all they could see were shadows and shapes. But now, with the revealing of the New Testament, there's this new light, and for you and me, things are brought into color. That quote that I said earlier, she's saying that things are in color because she doesn't know anything about the Bible. I mean, that's completely the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Things are in color because of what's now been revealed and opened up to us. Now, I want to make it clear here. I'm not suggesting that that we can know everything with clarity in the Bible. Uh, There are a lot of things that we don't know with certainty. There's a lot of disagreement among Christians about end times, about baptism, uh, about how evil entered the world. There's a lot of mysterious things. I'm not denying that. And nor am I suggesting that we should go around just acting like we've got it all figured out. No, I mean, we should always approach the Scriptures with an attitude of humility. We should always be willing to submit our views to the teaching of Scripture. We should always be teachable. We should always be willing to admit that we are wrong. We should always bring an attitude of humility. But friends, don't confuse humility for willful ignorance. Not the same thing. To keep yourself in the dark, to refuse to look into the Scriptures in this idea that, well, I can never really know, is willful ignorance and not the same as humility. Friends, you can know what you need to know to be saved, to have relationship with God. The Bible is clear about who God is as a holy God who is also a loving God. The Bible is clear that you and I are sinful people. We've rebelled against God. We deserve his condemnation. The Bible is clear that God in his mercy has come into the world in the person of his son. And he has laid down his life for sinners. He has shed his blood. He has resurrected from the dead. A glorious bodily resurrection. Jesus lives now at this moment. And he is coming again. And when he comes again, he is going to fix everything that is broken. He is going to renew the entire cosmos. And what he promises is that any who would turn from his or her sin and trust in this Jesus, believe in him, simply put faith in him and turn from all of your efforts to earn your own salvation. Anyone willing to trust Jesus will be saved. That is clear. That is clear. 
Here's what our confession says. I think it sums it up very well. All things in Scripture are not alike, plain in themselves, nor clear to everybody, but those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. I read this uh, parable from a guy named Christopher Ash told this story. Satan has three demon apprentices, three demons that he's training. And Satan turns to the, the first demon and he says, well, what are you going to do today? And the demon says, I'm going to go out and try to convince people that there is no God. And Satan says, well, it's not a bad idea, but it's probably not going to work because everybody knows instinctively that there's a God. The created order cries out that there is a God. Uh, you'll get some people to buy that, but, but not many. And he turns to the second demon and he says, what are you going to do today? And he says, I'm going to go tell people that there's no judgment. And Satan says, yeah, that's, that's a better idea. Uh, in fact, you'll probably get a lot of pastors to say that. Um, but that's not going to really last either because p- people know that there are consequences to their actions. People struggle with, with guilty consciences. They, they, they just know that they're accountable for what they do and say. <clears throat> so that's better, but that's probably not going to do it either. So he turns to the third demon and he says, what are you going to do today? And he says, I'm going to go out and tell people there's no hurry. And Satan says, that's brilliant. That's perfect. And in fact, you can whisper in their ear, there's so many interpretations, there's so many denominations, so much confusion. What can you really know? Put it off. Gather a bunch more information. There's no hurry. Friends, what the prophets have searched for diligently, what the angels with passion are longing to know, is offered to you today with great clarity. Turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, you have been good to reveal so much to us. We praise you. We thank you. Help us to make full use of all that you've revealed to us in the gospel and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.